0: From the McCourney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. I'm Chris Beam.
1: I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. Our guest this week is Ethan Porter, who is assistant professor at George Washington University, the School of Media and Public Affairs, and author of a new book called The Consumer Citizen. And Ethan will say during the course of this interview that how he thinks about this notion of The consumer citizen, or who he thinks of in this framework, is probably not people who are listening to this podcast necessarily, but I think we can all think about people in our lives who might fit this model a little bit more. I know for me, this book really resonated because this consumer citizen framework does describe, I don't know, my family, most of my friends, pretty much everybody in my life except you guys. So, uh, yeah, it's an interesting argument, and I was excited to talk to him about it. And this notion of citizenship has come up before several times on the show, and maybe that's a good place to start as as a refresher of, you know, what are some of the ways that we typically think about citizenship in a democracy?
2: Yeah, that's a really big question, but it is one that is unavoidable in terms of Ethan's book, right? It's called The Consumer Citizen. And it is framing the understanding of what a democratic citizen is, how they should understand their role in a democracy and how they should understand their relationship to their government. And this is a question that is at the core of democracy, right? I mean, you go all the way back to the Greeks and the Romans and The founders knew these. We talked about this before. They followed these arguments very closely. And there was an understanding that a democracy demanded a great deal of you if it was to succeed. So we have to accept human nature as it is, and we have to employ auxiliary precautions. We need to employ mechanisms whereby we can take human nature and move it in the direction that we want and towards the ends that we want and so i think in some ways that's what ethan is trying to do as well
0: okay so there is a notion of citizenship a sort of traditional notion of citizenship that says that as democratic citizens we need to be involved and engaged
2: in our politics is that right is we that, are we, we are sovereign And so because we are sovereign, we have a responsibility.
0: But I thought Madison got us out of the sort of trap of having to be intricately involved in politics by setting up a republic. That's well... We hire people to do that for us. And then, you know, I hire a plumber to do my pipes (laughs) and I hire a congressperson to do my politics. And if I don't like the job that she's doing as my agent in politics,
2: then I can fire her. Right. But you are... Not merely... I mean, well, this is the argument, right? Is that a sufficient set of questions? Do those questions exhaust what is required of a citizen and what is best for a democracy?
0: And and because trust is so low, it, it probably relates back to this notion of thinking of ourselves as consumers rather than citizens.
2: And all they're getting you know, from the Reagan era on down is this idea that government is wasting your money. Government is not to be trusted. And if it was a more targeted Mm -hmm. information to the citizen as consumer, here's what your money is paying for. Here's what you are getting for your taxes, not in a, it just in terms of just here's how much it costs and here's what you're getting for it it would enhance people's knowledge and therefore trust. Right. Is that probably, you know, a good
0: Mm -hmm. summation?
2: Now, I know there
0: are some concerns that people don't pay a lot of attention to politics. But actually, what we've seen in the last four years is that when it affects them enough, they absolutely will pay attention to politics. I mean, we've seen nothing but an increase in attention to politics over the last four years. It's picked up in public opinion surveys that just asked the question. It's picked up in the sales of books about democracy, which we've talked about many times. It's picked up in the success of podcasts like ours and others in the democracy group that want to talk about it. I mean, in some ways, Trump has been better for democratic citizenship than anybody else has been because he's activated people on both sides. Turnout Mm -hmm. is higher than it used to be people show up at protests more than they ever did before. Hell, they even try to take over the whole capital, <laughs> Right. So I right. Mean, the, the idea, what, what I'm trying to get a handle on is, are we addressing here a crisis in people not paying enough attention to politics? Or is there some sort of problem in how people are thinking about politics? Because certainly they are paying attention to politics because it's important to them right now. Right. What we're going to find in the Joe Biden years, they're going to pay less attention to politics because it's kind of boring. And they don't make as many connections back to their immediate sense of concerns, whether those concerns are real or symbolic.
2: You can make the argument that the Trump tax cut was extremely weighted towards the most wealthy Americans. And so the people that were making significantly less than that could see it in terms of their own self-interest as being not that great, but they weren't evaluating it in that way. They were evaluating it. In terms of this is, you know, we're cutting government, we're getting money back to the people who made it, and that's good enough for me. I mean, I don't know how much that solves the problem for Ethan, but I do think that there is a degree in which this rank partisanization, the tribalization of American politics, has made it harder for people to do a consumer-like evaluation, right? It's not just, did this dry cleaner do a good job on my shirts? It's not that. Because it is so much, it's more like, I am such an Apple geek that I'm going to affirm the Apple product, even if it's lousy. Because that's part of my identity. I guess that that would be the art.
1: All right. So this has been a really interesting discussion of citizenship. And I think a good segue into how Ethan sees it. So let's go now to the interview. Ethan Porter, welcome to Democracy Works. Thank you so much for joining us today.
3: So great to be here.
1: So your book, The Consumer Citizen, provides a lot of interesting ways to think about the relationship between our political lives and our lives as consumers, and excited to dive into some of that with you today. But before we get to that, I think it's helpful to give listeners an idea of of who exactly we're talking about when we say the consumer citizen. And in the book, you kind of lay out a prototype that I believe you refer to as homo emptor. Can you tell us who is the consumer citizen?
3: Sure. So almost by definition, the consumer citizen is not listening to this podcast. The consumer citizen is someone whose relationship with politics is at best at arm's length, who doesn't spend his or her days dwelling over the minutia of partisan debates or uh, their own policy preferences. The consumer citizen, though, is a fairly typical American insofar as he or she spends most of his or her time not thinking about politics and instead thinking about the otherwise mundane things that occupy them. And one of those things that occupies a fair bit of everyone's time is shopping. And I don't just mean, you know, going to the mall and buying nice clothes on a Saturday, but you know going out to eat for lunch and deciding what you'll have and then maybe going to the coffee shop or picking up your kids and getting gas on the way all those decisions aggregate and have a sort of composite effect on on people so that people i think learn a set of techniques and habits as consumers and for those who don't care a lot about politics who don't spend a lot of time thinking about politics it's those techniques and tools they learn as consumers that comes to shape their political life. So the people I'm talking about are consumers first, citizens second. And understanding their politics requires us to understand the influence of consumerism in their lives and on their politics.
1: Sure. So is it the case that these consumer decisions are so prevalent and take up so much mental bandwidth that people can't devote they don't have the the time to devote to questions of politics or civic engagement, or is it that people are, are making a conscious choice to say, no, I don't want to engage in politics to this level and I'm going to focus my energy on these other things? Instead. yes,
3: so I think it's a little bit of both. I, I think that to some extent consumerism comes to dominate our decision making absolutely, but at the same time, It's important to remember that many people are not even considering a choice between politics and consumerism. For many people, that would be a laughable choice. Their interest in politics is pretty minimal. Consumer citizens aren't necessarily compelled to spend or forced to spend less time on politics because of all the time they spend shopping. It's that they don't really like politics. They find it uninteresting. They have many other ways to spend their lives. But what unites them nonetheless is their reliance on consumer decisions. So on those unusual occasions, when consumer citizens are pressed to go vote or when a pollster calls them, you know, who do you support? Or when a friend asks them, will you show up at this protest or rally? Those are the rare instances that politics intrudes on their lives. And in those rare instances, I would argue, and I I show in the book, that all the other stuff they've done as consumers tends to play a role in how they respond.
1: Right. And you also kind of trace the history of the relationship between citizen and consumer. And if I'm recalling correctly, it kind of crosses over at some point in the mid-20th century where people go from thinking themselves primarily as citizens to primarily as consumers. Am, Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah,
3: that's largely consistent with what I show in the book. So in the book, I go back even farther and I talk about the way in which actually a penchant for consumerism unified the colonists of the revolutionary era, right? You know, separated geographically and separated in other ways as well. The colonists had consumerism in common. Historians have shown that sort of commercial news, commercial pamphlets, and information about buying and selling actually brought colonists together during the Revolutionary War period. Through the 20th century, citizenship remained quite powerful, but after World War II, historian Elizabeth Cohen has spoken about the rise of the consumer's republic, where what really mattered for people in in politics was what they were, sort of the Ralph Nader set of concerns, right? What people were buying, were these products safe? And you can actually trace over time, as, as I show in the book, uses of the word consumerism and consumer displaced uses of the word citizen and citizenship over the 20th century. Over the 20th century, the seeds were there in the Revolutionary War period, but it was during the 20th century that... Consumerism came to sort of take the dominant place in the consumer citizen relationship,
1: right? And we, I mean, we also in this time saw the massive growth of advertising oh, wow. on the radio and on television. Now, of course, on social media and digital media, and pretty much everywhere, return is advertising these days. I mean, so what role yes. did those factors play here?
3: Yeah, so I love this question. I've thought about this a lot. It's true, right? That the number of advertisements that the average person has seen in a day has skyrocketed in our lifetimes over the past 20 or 30 years the number has increased considerably we see ads all the time right on your phone when you're you know on the internet listening to podcasts right the advertisements are everywhere in some ways we can think of the effects of advertising as not necessarily affecting a particular political view or preference but rather affecting the entirety of the approach that people have when they're prompted to think about politics advertising encourages us to think about the costs of goods and makes an argument that in buying something, if you buy this, your life will be better. You'll have to pay a price, but your life will improve in some way. It will, you know, make your life easier or whatever, you know, you'll buy a can of beer, you'll be really good at volleyball or something, you know, as the old Bud Light commercial showed. And it's not as if that has direct effects on our politics, but it does however affect how we view politics And I think that's important to understand. Suddenly people immersed in advertising come to view politics as about what they can get for their money and is what they're paying a a fair price to pay for what they get back.
1: So it's not necessarily that individual citizens should want to necessarily become more involved. It's that they should realize that there's this whole other group of people working for the government that are basically taking care of these things so they don't have to.
3: I, I think part of the argument of my book, though, is that those of us who care about political participation and civic engagement can sometimes be tempted to throw our hands up in the air and say, oh, my God, there's nothing we can do. People just aren't going to care about politics and care about civil society and the public good. And There's nothing we can do. And the consumer citizen says, OK what if we just tried to meet people where they are? And so if we want to communicate to people what government does, communicate to those people as consumers, right, with the kind of advertising that people are used to or at least familiar with. There's no reason to view this as beneath you or beneath government. This is, I think, essential. We want to, government should want to meet people where they are. And my hope would be that that kind of approach would encourage people to become more civically active and more civically engaged. So, you know, Rather than seeing an advertisement about government and putting off political activism and civic engagement, people think, oh, wow, well, I can get involved. I could care about this or, oh, huh, I didn't know government did that. I wanted to do something different or I wanted to do something better. Those would be fantastic consequences of such an advertising strategy.
1: Yeah, and this notion of civic education certainly comes up a lot on this show and in kind of democracy reform more broadly. uh, You have an example in the book, I believe it's at Costco, of how you can kind of integrate some of these things into people's everyday shopping habits. Uh, Tell us. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. So when people talk about uh, civic education or curriculums for civics, we're often thinking about just high schoolers, right? Like what should high schoolers know? And it's surely an important question, but that question also elides the vast majority of Americans who are, uh, Many would be happy. They're, they're not in high school anymore. So how can we reach them? And in the book, I just sort of speculate that we should reach them when they're shopping. You know, So in a pre-pandemic or hopefully one day post-pandemic world, you go into Costco and instead of just getting a few samples of delicious food, you can also get connected to a local government official, a town hall with your elected officials, etc. You, you, there might be a little booth where you could learn about what government does, what it doesn't do, who your elected officials are, what services are available to you. That would be the kind of thing that government could do that it hasn't done, but I think it should do. Another example that I have is Amazon, right? So there's great evidence, I think, attesting to the ability of virtual town halls to really make a difference on people's level of engagement with politics, right? By virtual town halls, I mean like town halls over the internet where people get to meet and virtually greet their representatives. Imagine you're checking out of Amazon and you're offered an opportunity to meet your representative virtually, participate in this virtual town hall right then and there or later tonight or come back tomorrow. Government and civic activism should be integrated into the places where citizens live. I mean, they, they live in online shopping venues to some extent, and government should be unafraid to go there and, and communicate and correspond with them.
1: Does a scenario like that, whether it's Costco or Amazon or, you know, you pick the company, I mean, doesn't that also set up a situation where the company is like, okay, well, we'll do this for you, but what are we gonna get in return? Which sure. which sets up a whole other can of worms.
3: The broader question of why Costco should do this, or you know, what's in it for them, so to speak? I think large corporations often enjoy sort of social esteem that comes from working for the public good. This is why Bank of America donate, you know, has a really active philanthropic arm so to many other large corporations. And this could be part of that, but actually, you know, frankly, probably at less cost. Amazon already offers you the opportunity to donate right through their Amazon Smile program. And they do that because they know and they have evidence suggesting that the Amazon Smile program makes you more likely to buy stuff. You can imagine a similar consequence of a campaign to get Amazon to offer you the opportunity to chat with your representative.
1: Yeah, this brings in the idea of corporate social responsibility, which is something else I was thinking about as I read your book. There's this weird, I don't know if if paradoxes is the right word, but a kind of an odd situation where citizens are stepping back from these sorts of civic matters because they are spending more time as consumers. They're not not engaging in civic issues. But on the other hand, corporations themselves are becoming more civically active, civically minded. Particularly, we've seen Jamie Dimon and the, the Business Roundtable speak out about election integrity and condemning the January 6th insurrection. So, I mean, how do you think about these two sorts of sides of things. I know my brain starts to hurt when i try to think about <laughs> this kind of stuff too much, but it is an interesting development, I think, that we've seen.
3: Yeah, yeah. Part of me thinks that the answer has to do with the way in which actually Jamie Dimon is not a consumer citizen, mm-hmm. right? That those in charge of corporate responsibility are actually deeply politically attentive in a way that is makes them unusual. And so to engage in that kind of corporate social responsibility already means that you know, you're not a typical consumer citizen, right? But surely civic education could flow from a commitment to corporate re- social responsibility. And part of that commitment to civic education can be the responsibility of the corporations, right? And this is already sort of what we're touching back on. Like, you know, why should Bank of... I don't know, I'm just thinking about Bank of America a lot today. But Bank of America has a really active... Corporate social responsibility program, maybe when you do your banking, you can get connected to your legislator. That seems weird or unfamiliar, but the alternative is what we have now, where most people are not connected to their legislator. They're not connected to those who represent them, and they're unaware of what government does and what those who represent them do. So I think ultimately the answer to your question is corporate social responsibility should enlarge its horizons to include civic education that can be carried out by the corporations themselves, Mm -hmm. and I think that can be useful.
1: Hey everyone, it's Jenna. Mm -hmm. We're going to take a brief break from the interview to start a series that we'll be rolling out here over the next couple of weeks on Democracy Works. We are going to be uh, highlighting our partner shows in the Democracy Group podcast network. I really enjoy all of the shows in our network, and I'm so excited to be able to tell you about them uh, over the next couple of weeks. First up is Democracy in Danger, which is a production of the Deliberative Media Lab at the University of Virginia. The show explores how trends like voter suppression, disinformation, nativist ideology are impacting democracy in the U.S. and around the world. Previous guests include voting rights scholar Carol Anderson, UVA president Jim Ryan, and the ACLU's Dale Ho. You can find Democracy in Danger wherever you listen to podcasts. And now back to the interview. I've also been thinking a lot about, well, so there's, as you know, a, a whole portion of the country that thinks there should be less government in our lives. It's long been a, a tenant of, of libertarian thinking, and I think it's sort of spread to more mainstream conservative circles as well. So how do you think about those groups in this picture of, of trying to make the case for more government in our lives?
3: Sure. So, so I would say this, right? So to some extent, I argue in the book that belief that there should be less government is owed to misperceptions that stem from consumer citizenship. So in the book, I I describe a typical consumer citizen, right? And it is probably a he. I have survey work suggesting that male Trump supporters are especially likely to believe in consumer citizenship. And you can take a mid-40s man who comes home from work on a Friday. He's been taxed he's upset about or he's a little annoyed with the amount of money that he's lost to his taxes. He spends the weekend going to a public park, taking prescription painkillers, and maybe taking his wife out to dinner. Okay, In those three activities, he benefited from three government services. He benefited from public parks. He benefited from regulation that facilitated his painkiller. And he benefited from the local agency in charge of making his food was safe. But he likely never connected those benefits to government. And instead, I I think he probably leaves that weekend feeling that he got ripped off as a consumer, right? He's like, well, I I spent, you know, whatever, $500 was taken out of my paycheck on Friday and then I got nothing for it. But that's actually not true. He, He did get government benefits distributed over the weekend to him. And to me, that then just returns the call, right, to, okay, government needs to be really clear about what benefits it provides. And to some extent, those benefits, I think once made salient, will change people's Views And indeed, that's what I show in the book, that once you make clear those benefits, you can get people to not only trust government more, but want government to spend more money than it does.
1: So in a perfect world where the government reads your book, listens to these interviews you've been doing, takes your advice, what types of changes do you think we see as a result? Because I think you could also say that voter turnout is at at record high levels. We're seeing people in the streets, both for causes like Black Lives Matter and also for the things like the Capitol insurrection. I mean, you you can disagree politically with with the purpose of those things, but they're still actions nonetheless. So what, what? what would look different than what we currently see? So
3: I'd say, one, I think we actually have probably been at a high watermark for the past year in terms of civic engagement and political activism. I think Americans are going to return to what I think of sometimes as American quietism. I think we're, we're going to witness a decrease in political activism and civic engagement. That's just my guess, um, that I, my, my informed guess I've had for some time. You know, I, I don't, let me put it this way, I don't expect current levels of political engagement to sustain or increase indefinitely. So let's say government then took up some of the recommendations in the book. I think at the very least, there would be an advertising campaign put out by federal bureaucrats separate from political leaders. I think that's almost a no-brainer at this point. Campaigns just to communicate what it is that government does. Campaigns that are separate from the interests of politicians. Then there are other things that government could do as I show in the book, government can, people are more likely to take up government services if they believe that the costs and benefits of those services are basically meet the criteria of consumer fairness. I think if government speaks about fairness more in this consumer way, they're likely to see more uptake of services. And that, coupled with an advertising campaign that leads people to trust government more, could really change the sort of political landscape in this country.
1: And how do you think about the consumer citizen ideology? People are not really engaged in politics on the one hand, but on the other hand, I feel like I see a different story, or different poll, different research come out all the time that says politics is becoming an ever-increasing part of our identities or, or we're yeah. sorting ourselves along those lines. How do sure. How do you square those two?
3: Yeah, I think about that a lot. And I think oftentimes... What those surveys pick up on is simply the response that this is maybe a little political science but those surveys are picking up on responses that people give when queried, right, about their political views. Sort of definitionally, those surveys cannot pick up on people's political views when they are not thinking about politics. My research is about, and my book is about the ways in which all the stuff people do when they're not thinking about politics comes to affect what they do when they are on those unusual occasions. Asked to really take a political stand. So others have shown, you know, for many people, parties are brands, politicians are brands. In the same way that Coke, Pepsi, and Apple products are brands, we're loyal to our brands, and so too are we loyal to our political parties. They're actually sort of similar, I would argue, in how people construe them.
1: So the parties get this consumer citizen idea much better than the government itself.
3: I don't want to give too much credit to mm. our political parties. Um, <laughs> I think that it's just natural for citizens to view the parties as brands, I would say, almost through no fault of the parties. And in fact, I, you know, to be totally honest, now that I'm thinking about this, I've been struck and I have other research. You know, maybe I should I should really think about this more. The parties actually, I think, don't advertise themselves as brands particularly well. I think that people have turned them into brands on their own accord. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I would actually say I've got other research suggesting that the parties are perhaps not doing this intentionally, but people are queried about partisanship, so they give answers about partisanship. But most of the time, they're thinking about brands and what they want to buy, what they don't want to buy, how much you're willing to spend, et cetera. And so when they're asked about parties, they think about the parties as brands, Mm -hmm. even though the parties themselves, I think, have done very little to sort of earn that.
1: So as you said at the beginning, people listening to this podcast don't fit this prototype of a consumer citizen, but everybody, I think, can conjure someone in their lives who fits this description. So are there things, and and, and of course, we are all ourselves to some extent consumers and we Uh work for corporations and and we interact with the system. So I guess what can people do? Like, how can we all help if people agree with these ideas you put forward? How can they kind of help move the needle on them?
3: Sure. I think that the fundamental way forward is conceding that citizenship in the 21st century might not look like previous centuries have expected it to look. And indeed, it might not look the way we want it to look. But once we concede that, I think those of us who are civic-minded, can begin to take action, and that action might simply be, you know, if you work at a company that could connect people to their local representatives, do it. Uh, you work at a storefront or you work at a, any place where people are regularly buying stuff or stopping in in person or over the internet to make a transaction. Think about ways in which that transaction could be directly connected to some civic opportunity for civic engagement. You have the power to actually make a difference and, and connect people. The second thing is, in the book, I talk about advertisements for the federal government, right, with the sort of the national picture. But I also talk about advertisements for just local towns. That's actually what the ad we tested is actually just an ad based on what a local town is doing. So it seems to me that localities of all shapes and sizes should think seriously about communicating to their residents what they do in the kind of advertisements that I'm talking about. Just simple, succinct descriptions of the benefits they provide cumulatively. I think that kind of advertising campaign can take place, sure, at the federal level, but it can also definitely take place at the local level, too.
1: Yeah, I mean, if there's a way to pay for it, I suppose. I mean, I know that, that, you know, state and local governments are also facing huge budget cuts. And maybe there's a way for advertisers to offer services pro exactly. bono or, you know, some. Type exactly. Of those.
3: Exactly. Right. I mean, so if you're in marketing, communications, advertising or related firms, you know, some of this is on you, too. Like you can actually give up your time and think about how you might donate your services to the betterment of civil society and civic life in your area.
1: Great. Well, we will uh, leave it there. Ethan, thank you for your work in putting these arguments together in the book. And thank you for joining us today to talk about it.
3: Hey, thank you so much. This is so much fun.
0: All right, Chris, a really interesting interview about a provocative and kind of challenging book, I think, raises two questions for me that maybe we could talk about in this second half. One is I'm curious if you're comfortable with this notion of thinking about citizenship in terms of consumerism, because, you know, capitalism and democracy have different values. And so if we're going to think about ourselves in sort of capitalist terms, you're talking about efficiency, you're talking about inequality, you're not talking about equality and justice and the kinds of values that we we tend to think of with democracy. So that's one issue. The other is, it, it seems to me his argument puts a lot of burden on government and how it speaks to citizens, And in particular, that there's kind of a marketing dimension or that they need to be doing a better job of explaining and talking about what it is that they're doing. I think that's a second issue and and really germane right now, because the Senate just passed an enormous stimulus bill. The economy is going to be flooded with money over the next year. And I would think that uh, Joe Biden wants the Democrats to get credit for that, not the government to get credit
2: for that. Right. Right. Matter of fact, there, there was just an article in the Washington Post that spoke exactly to that point. Well, just sure,
0: because point. everybody remember. well, maybe they don't, because as Jenna told us at the beginning, nobody else is paying attention. But when there were the uh, stimulus checks during the Trump administration, he signed them with his name and he put a letter in talking about how valuable it was that he had done this, even right. though it was a bipartisan bill. I mean, the right. New Deal, There were signs all over the country. The CCC brought you this. The Work Progress Administration brought you this. And then after the Economic Recovery Act of 2009, there was, uh, you know, signs at construction sites brought to you by the Economic Recovery Act or whatever it was called. I Mm -hmm. can't remember the exact name Mm -hmm. of it. What's new here? What am I missing? What's new?
2: Well, I am very reluctant to let your first question wither on the vine. Can we go back to that one? Yeah. I mean, I think they're both really interesting questions and important. And it speaks to the book that it's so provocative. But so consumers, is that the right way to understand citizens? Obviously, there's a long tradition within democratic theory that would say absolutely not. And there are a number of figures out there in the academy and in politics who would say absolutely not. That it's not just a diminishment But there's something absolutely pernicious about it because it's taking this frame, which you just articulated, right, that a consumer is looking for the most for the least, right? You're looking for the most value for the least amount of money, and your frame of reference is selfish, right? That's not a moral statement. That's just empirical, right? You're looking to get as much as you can for as little as possible. And and the fact that everybody thinks that way is why the system works.
0: Yeah. Let me throw another perspective out there too. I actually think maybe it's healthier that people associate what government does with the party that did it rather than just with some vague government because Mm -hmm. politics is about parties. It's about this party will do that and this other party will do the other thing and that what needs to be communicated, I'm just articulating a sort of responsible party model of how the world operates, is that the public knows that, hey, this stimulus check is coming to you from Joe Biden and the Democrats. It's not coming to you from the government. I mean, the government is processing it, but it's the Democratic Party that brought it to you. And it made it happen. Yeah. And that made it happen. Now, maybe you think that's a terrible thing. And maybe you think that's a good thing. But that is the truth. And it would seem to me that democracy requires that people know who gave it to you and who didn't. Not that the government gave it to you. The government is controlled by one party or the other. I mean, the linkage between the public and government is through parties, right. not through mass advertising. right? And so I don't know, I'm, I'm not quite getting the idea that, well, government needs to promote what it does. Now, The party in charge needs to promote what it did so that people can either hold it accountable
2: or give it credit. Yeah, I That's think how democracy works, isn't it? If I were in charge of the Department of Agriculture, say, I would read this book and I would be thinking about ways that I could do this. I would be trying to figure out, and I'd have my minions come up with pitches for me. How can we make this happen? But I would be very, very circumspect and deliberate before I pulled the trigger on any one of them. Hmm. So I think he's got a point, but I think it's a much harder task to frame that in a way that is benign than he Well, saying. and to give full credit to the argument, I mean, he,
0: he thinks that government ought to be presenting these things in terms that a consumer appreciates, right? So you want to emphasize that your tax dollars are being well-spent here. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. So that this there's value.
0: value this, right. You're getting your value because mm-hmm. consumers think in terms of value, and so you're getting your values worth.
2: Yeah, I think it's clear that you and I, Michael, have some pretty strong disagreements with Ethan, but I also want to just point out that it is dramatic how this kind of provocative contrarian book makes you think and makes you reexamine your presuppositions and challenges your assumptions. And I have found this as provocative, thought-provoking a book as we've read in a while. And that is quite a compliment at the end of the day, I'd
0: say. Yes, we've had quite a dialogue over the week talking about Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. generates a lot of discussion. Mm-hmm.
2: And so it's all about how you evaluate our current state of affairs and where we're going and how to get us to where we need to be. And in that way, too, it's a contribution. So a great conversation. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Jenna. Thank you, Ethan. I'm Chris Beam. I'm Michael Berkman. Thanks for listening.
1: Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Our editors are Mark Stitzer, Jen Bortz, and Chris Kugler. And additional support comes from WPSU's Andy Grant, Emily Reddy, Chris Allen, and Craig Johnson. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please consider leaving us a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.